1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. Well, the whole theme of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart, and we've been uh, learning a lot of uh, good lessons and bad lessons. And uh, we learned last time about Saul's foolishness, where you know, Samuel told Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Um, and so we saw, you know, that Saul was more interested in keeping up appearances for the people than he was for obeying the Lord. And that was a foolish heart. But despite Paul's, Saul's foolishness and the danger that it put Israel in, um, his son Jonathan continued to follow the Lord. And so while Saul hardens his heart at that correction from the Lord, Jonathan opens his heart to what God in his graciousness might do. And so as we meet this amazing young man for the first time tonight, you know, his steadfast heart will be a marked contrast with his father's stubborn heart. And so may the Lord use his example that we might learn to have steadfast hearts that show we're different too. So chapter 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. It says, And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people that were present with them, they abode in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned unto the way that leads to Ophrah and unto the land of Shual. Another company turned the way of Beth Haran, and another company turned to the way of the border that looks to the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. And so it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and with Jonathan his son was there found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. Here we see that because of Saul's disobedience, that the Lord doesn't give him the next step, that the Philistines begin to oppress Israel. In chapter uh, 13, verse 16, it starts off by saying that Saul and Jonathan, they stayed in Gabeah of Benjamin. That's Saul's hometown. Now, remember, Saul originally had 3,000 men, and he had summoned everyone else who was able to fight to Gilgal. But we learned already in chapter 13 that he's down to 600 men at this point in time. Israel needs a miracle if they're going to defeat this massive army of the Philistines. But the problem is this. Saul has no clue what God wants him to do next. He's disobeyed orders by not waiting for Samuel to perform the sacrifice so they could seek the Lord together. And when Samuel confronted him with that sin, Saul refused to repent. So guess what? God doesn't speak. (laughs) God has nothing to say. And, and, you know, before we even get into the problems that this causes, you know, when you and I compound our sin with a stubborn reaction to God's conviction, it always leaves us in that type of limbo because God's going to refuse to move forward with me in that state. It's not that he doesn't want to move forward. It's not that he's, you know, angry with me and he's done with me. It's that he's not going to let me move forward like that. He's going, he's going to be willing to receive me if I repent, but he's going to resist me if I remain prideful. And so Saul's in that limbo state where he refuses to repent, he's prideful, and the Lord just kind of mums the word. And so without a clue about what to do next, Saul follows the one man who might know what to do, 
Samuel, who we read in verse 15, we closed with last week, that he went to Gabeah of Benjamin. Gabeah is just five miles from this massive Philistine army. Samuel has nothing to fear. He knows what the Lord's plan is, but Saul won't humble himself. So he doesn't know what to do, so he just goes to where Samuel is. And the problem is, when he gets there, Samuel has nothing to say. So with no Israeli force coming out to meet the Philistines for battle, the Philistines figure Israel's fled the field. And so we see in verse 17 that they send out these harassing forces into the countryside and to assert, to, to assert their authority. Look at verse 17. And the spoilers, it says, came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies, and it tells us they all went three different directions in verses 18 and 19. Now, when we think of spoilers, you know, sometimes we might think of maybe like scouts or, you know, advanced forces, but that is not who these guys are. The word spoilers means those who cause destruction and death. Proverbs 28:24 describes this type of a military soldier. In Proverbs 28:24, it says this. It says Whosoever robs his father or mother, oh, that's sorry, that's a different proverb. Don't do that either. <laughs> Why did I write down 28:24? Oh, it is right. That is correct. I'm sorry, 28:24. Whosoever robs his father or his mother and says, it's no transgression. I didn't do anything wrong. The same is a companion of a destroyer, it says here, but it's the same word, spoiler. That's why I got confused. The idea here is that, you know, whosoever robs his mom and dad and goes, I'm doing nothing wrong, that's who these type of people these are. They, they don't have any bonds. They don't have any, any um, qualms. They, they don't get squeamish with doing awful things, okay? Th- these are the type of people that are pillagers. They're designed to inspire terror by destroying crops, by destroying homes, by murdering and enslaving anyone they come across. That's their job to frighten the population into submission. And these group of raiders, it says that they go to the northeast, to the west, and to the southeast. Now, these these pillagers that go out to do this in these directions would divide Israel in half, okay? Making it very difficult uh, for them to unite against the Philistines. And as we'll see in a moment, the plan worked. Because to stop the raiding, to stop the pillaging, local Israelis agree to give up their ability to produce weapons. Verse 19, now there was no smith found throughout all Israel. The phrase now is not describing something that was in the past. It actually should be translated so then, which means as a result of these pillagers. As a result of these raiding parties going out, it says that there were no weapons found in all, no, I'm sorry, no smith found in all Israel. The word there means a highly skilled craftsman, but Clearly here the context refers to someone who would be like a, a weapon maker, you know, or, or an armor maker, or someone who would be able to, you know, uh, you know, smith these things that the Israelis would be able to fight with. Um, why was there no one found? Well, the Philistines either killed them or took them captive. And uh, if, the, if the Israelis needed repairs for any of their work tools, you know, well, then they had to go to the Philistines, and it didn't come cheap. Look at verse 20. It says, but all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share, his coulter, his axe, his mattock. These are all uh, farming tools. But verse 21 says, yet they had a file. Uh, That phrase, had a file for, means the fee for the sharpening. So the fee for the sharpening for any of these things was two-thirds of a shekel. It's not translated here, but it's in the text. 
Two-thirds of a shekel is about $200 for us. Could you imagine if you were working in the yard and you had to go get something resharpened and it cost you that much? That's when you go and buy a new tool. The Philistines, their heart was, we see in verse 19, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. This is oppression. Disarming the Israelis and setting up a system of subservience implies a period of time between the events at the start of chapter 13 and the events of, of chapter 14. By the, when Jonathan first attacks the Philistines and they are victorious and where we're at now, there's a period of time that has to go on in between where Saul's doing nothing and is, the Israelis are being oppressed. And so that, big, that brings the question to mind, what is Saul doing during this time? He's their king, isn't he? Isn't one of the reasons they wanted a king is that someone would organize them and lead them out into battle? Where is he? Well, we'll learn later on in chapter 14 that he's brooding under a tree. He's doing that because he knows he can't move against the Philistines without supernatural help. But he refuses to acknowledge his sin so he can get that help. Listen, if you blow it, if you disobey the Lord, if you sin, confess your sin and repent. <laughs> That's the best solution. You know, the enemy comes to whisper to you and say, oh, no, you're God, you know, you can't go to God now. Oh, no, I know, because that's what he tells me. You can't talk to the Lord about this, or God can't use you anymore, or God won't forgive you, or, or here you are again. The very best thing you can do when you've blown it is to confess your sin and repent. Listen, learn from me. There's nothing more miserable and less productive than a backslidden believer who knows what's right but refuses to do it. There's nothing more miserable in this world. An unbeliever is much happier than a believer who is backslidden, knows what he's supposed to do, and refuses to do it. I remember I had a Bible college teacher who said you know, he, had a, he came out of the whole hippie movement. You know, he had gotten saved out of that movement. And uh, he had a period where he had backslidden and he went right back to his life of drugs. And so he went back to his old friends who were still doing drugs. And he said none of them wanted to hang out with him because as they're all getting high, he would look at them and go, you know, we're all going to hell, right? We're all, I mean, this is like we're all going to hell. Like, like we are lost. Like Jesus is the only way and none of us want to do what he says and so we're all going to hell. And they were like, dude, we don't want to hang out with you. There is nothing more miserable than a backslidden believer who knows what he's supposed to do but won't do it. Don't do that. The Lord loves you and he desires to forgive. Jesus still died for you knowing everything you've done and everything you will do. So humble yourself and run to him to find the grace and the mercy to help in your time of need. Now, here's the crazy part. Because of his stubbornness, in essence, Saul does lose the kingdom just like Samuel said he would. He told him when he did this, he said, God would have established you forever, but now the kingdom shall not continue. Now it's taken from you. Well, now it is because the Israelis aren't serving him anymore. They're serving the Philistines, just like Samuel said. His people bowed to the Philistines and put themselves at a major disadvantage. Look at verse 22. So it came to pass in the day of battle, when eventually a battle comes, we'll get to that later on, when that comes... There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and Jonathan, his son, there was found. So they were not disarmed. They were able to hold on to their weapons um, because they were in hiding the whole time. 
Now, I love how it says here, so it came to pass in the day of battle. The battle will come because God loves his people, even though Saul is putting himself before his people right now. Now, when it says that they had no sword nor spear, the, ref- the reference here is to, to iron weaponry, uh, the very best weaponry of that time. They likely had more primitive weapons um, because we, we'd already seen them doing fighting. What's interesting is that archaeologists, when they have dug up these old Philistine cities, they have found that they, during this time period, that they had a horde of iron weapons. As a seafaring people, they always had the best weaponry in the region. So this comment is probably stating that the only two people who had comparable weapons to the Philistines were Saul and Jonathan. But notice verse 23, all the appeasing that Israel tried to do wasn't enough. For now this army that had camped in Michmash now they start moving out, it says, to the passage of Michmash. If the people thought capitulation would bring them peace, they were sorely mistaken. Because now this massive Philistine army moves into a pass that heads to the east, further into Israeli territory, toward where most of the Israelis had fled across the Jordan River. And so at this point, someone decides to act. But it's not King Saul. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Now, It came to pass upon a day, Uh, literally means upon the day, upon the day that the Philistine army moved, that Jonathan the son of Saul said unto the young man that bare his armor, come and let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side, but he did not tell his father. Jonathan decides to undertake a secret mission. And the only one who's in on this mission is the one who bore his armor, this young man. Now, Every time I read my Bible and I read this story, I think of Jonathan, you know, and here he's going out, and like he's got like this little boy going with him, you know, who's like lugging his arm around and stuff, whatever. That's not, pro- if you didn't have that image, good for you, because you probably understood your Bible better than I did. That is not who this guy is. The armor bearer were officers in the army. They were officers in ancient armies. Uh, they had, officers had these assistants, and, and they were responsible uh, you know, for the ar- officers' personal armor and weaponry, but they also helped with administrative duties. These were not servants. These were not slaves. The, these aren't the equivalent of a, a water boy at a sporting event, okay? This is like the assistant coach, okay? These were solid soldiers, the ones who the officers trusted the most, their right-hand men. And so he turns to his right-hand guy, who he knows he can trust in a pinch, and he says, let's go undertake a secret mission. Let's go to the other side. And he doesn't tell his father. Now, to move the army of the Philistines from Michmash to go east, they'd have to go into this valley. They call them wadis over there. You'd have to go into this wadi. And so as they start moving into the wadi, Jonathan would, you know, and the troops would recognize, they would see the Philistines were on the move. So it just so happens that on the same day the Philistines are on the move, that Jonathan makes this choice, okay? And so he's going to see that the Philistine army is moving. Now, it does bring up a question, why doesn't he tell his father? Well, verse 2 and 3 tell us why. Verses 2 and 3 tell us what Saul's doing during this time. It says, and Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gabeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan was gone. Now, Remember in chapter 13 when I said that Samuel, Saul was tearing for Samuel, that that wasn't a bad thing, that it meant he was waiting for, hoping for, with expectation for Samuel to come. 
That's a good tarrying. This is a different word. This word means to settle down, to stay in one place. You could basically just say doing nothing. Saul is doing nothing in the uttermost part of Gabeah. He's not in the city because the city's not safe because the Philistines are looking for him. He was in the nearby field sitting stubbornly under a fruit tree. Why? Well, the person with him may give us an idea. For it says that Eli's great-grandson, the high priest, is here with Saul. Now, why is he not in the tabernacle? Well, we might say, well, the ark's not at the tabernacle, so what can he really do at the tabernacle? That might be possible. But we're going to find out later that the ark is actually here with Saul too. So why are the high priest and the ark with Saul here? Well, we see that the high priest is not just here, but he's actually wearing his ephod. He is in his high priestly garments that he would normally wear when serving in the tabernacle. So why does Saul have the Ark of the Covenant and a high priest ready to serve with him? Because Samuel's not talking. He's hoping this guy will talk. He is waiting for the high priest to give an answer from God, the next set of instructions. In fact, later on in the chapter, Saul is going to tell the high priest to bring the Ark, and he's going to say, you know, find out what God's doing. And What's crazy is that, you know, when he hears the noise of the Philistines fighting, he actually stops the priest from seeking the Lord and he makes his own decision to go off and fight. So the reason that Saul is pouting under the shade of a fruit tree is because God's staying quiet. Instead of repenting, Saul's stubbornness is bringing about the death of his nation. Because here's the truth, guys. When you're in a standoff like this with the Lord, the Lord is not going to be the one to move, ever. Ever. The Lord's never going to be the one to go, you know what? You got me. You got me. I'll go ahead and give this ground. He doesn't do that. You know, when Jacob wrestled with him all night, the Lord finally said, Jacob, you want to know how easy this could have been for me? And he just goes, boop. And he knocks his hip out of joint. By the end of this, Jacob's in so much pain, so much emotional anguish from because all his wrestlings with God didn't work. He's been able to connive his way against his brother. He'd been able to deceive his father. He'd been able to deceive his father-in-law. He'd always been able to swindle his way with, with whatever circumstance he was in. But when God came out and started wrestling with him, he gave God his best shot. And by the end, where did it leave him? Exhausted because he'd been up all night fighting and now he can't even run. And the Lord just looked at him and he said, you know, well, Jacob is begging, please bless me before you go, because the Lord's like, I'm done. I'm done. This is fruitless. I'm not budging. And Jacob cries out, and he says, please, don't leave me without blessing me. I got nothing left. And of course, the Lord has that famous question, what's your name? And for the first time, Jacob admits, I'm a dirty, sneaky thief. I'm a heel catcher. That's how I do it. That's when the Lord says, not anymore. That's my blessing to you. You're going to be different starting today. You're going to start trusting me. You're going to let me be in charge of your life. And things were different for Jacob. Not perfectly, <laughs> just like us. But things started to change after that. Well, Saul's not there. He's still being stubborn. And here's the sad part. Gideon defeated the Midianites with half the men that Saul had, 300. And his soldiers, they didn't have a whole lot of weaponry either. They went out there armed with trumpets and with lamps. And yet, 
God didn't need modern weaponry or superior numbers. All he needed was men with hearts that would steadfastly follow him. That's all he was looking for. I mean, it'd almost be like if Gideon was hanging out at this point in time, he'd look at Saul and go, what's your problem? You got twice the men I had. All the Lord was looking for was a heart that was steadfast toward him. The dictionary defines the word steadfast as dutifully firm and unwavering. It's not just being stubborn and unyielding. It means dutifully. It means you've been given orders and you're going to stand firm there and not be moved. You're going to execute your orders no matter what. Synonyms to this word are loyal, faithful, devoted. Saul is firm and unwavering, but it's not in his devotion or his loyalty to the Lord. He is firm and unwavering in his devotion to his appearance before his men. He won't repent, but he also won't confess in front of his men. And so he keeps up this charade of, guys, we're not doing anything until, because God hasn't spoken yet. We won't do anything until God tells us what to do. In contrast, Jonathan took what he did have, just one guy. He took him and his armor bearer, two guys, and a heart that was devoted to what the Lord might do in this difficult situation. And God, well, he's going to do some interesting things. Look at verse 4. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. Uh, the phrase there, sharp rock, it means like a steep hill. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna. And the forefront of the one was situated northward over against Michmash, and the other was southward over against Gabeah. And Jonathan said unto the young man that bears armor, he said, Come. And let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. I don't know, if I was Jonathan's armor bearer at this point in time, I would say, yeah, but I I would like a lot more. We'll get to that guy's response in a second, because it's way better than mine. But the idea here is these between the passages refers to these other smaller wadis that ran into the main wadi, uh, which people used to travel east and west in this region. So these in-between paths would, would need to be heavily watched by guards to ensure as the Philistine army came down from the hill on Michmash and came into the wadi to move east to ensure that no one hit them from the flank or no one hit them from behind by surprise. So they've got these garrisons stationed there, and as Jonathan makes this move. He notices they're moving, and he decides, let's go check on one of these guard spots and see what the Lord might do. So Jonathan checks on the Philistines by taking one of these, you know, narrow wadis to get to the bigger one, and the end leads him to a hill that overlooks another narrow passage on the other hill, and there he sees one of these posted guards, and he tells the armor bearer, hey, you know, let's go over unto the garrison, the guard, you know, group of these uncircumcised, I love is what he calls them. He doesn't say, let's go over to those people who have better weapons than us. Let's go over to those people who are outnumber us. He doesn't see them that way. He sees them as those whose lives aren't separated to the Lord, and therefore Jonathan sees the, ones as the, Phil- the Philistines as the ones who are at the disadvantage. Isn't that interesting? He looks over and he goes, let's go over and see those uncircumcised. They're, they don't, they're not in the place we are. We're dedicated to the Lord. Let's go over and see these folks who don't have the Lord on their side. I want to read to you something from 1 Samuel 17 from David when he confronted Goliath. 
Before he was going to go out to Goliath, Saul, of course, is meeting with David and trying to convince him to not go. In 1 Samuel 17, 33, Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, your servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered him out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I smote him again, and I slew him. And thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing as he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, go, and the Lord be with you. He'd probably heard that speech before from his son. Can you see why these two became best friends? Jonathan's like, let's go talk to those uncircumcised. You know, all the, all the, all the other Israelis are cowering when Goliath is out there going, oh, I'm Goliath, you know, I'm going to kill everybody, you know, and they're all running into the caves. And David's out here and he's like, who's this dude? You know, he's taller than you. He's a man of war. He's going he's gonna to step on you. And he's like, nah, brah, nah, nah, it's not going to go like that. Uh-uh. Uh-uh, I've already been through this, you know? I've already done this, all right? I've, I've played this song. I've, I've been in this act. I've seen this movie. I know how it ends, you know? I went out against the lion, against this, against the bear, you know? You know, dude took my sheep and knocked him in the face, you know? You know, he came at me after I took the sheep out of his mouth and I knocked him in the face again and killed him. Why? Because the Lord was with me. It's just an animal. I'm the Lord's. So this uncircumcised, he doesn't call him a giant. He doesn't call him this massive, mighty warrior. He goes, this uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them. Both Jonathan and David were men who assessed situations based on what God's word said instead of what their own senses or even other people's senses told them. That's faith. You know, when your senses tell you and say, this is no way this can work. If, like, if I obey God here, there's no way it works. That's where faith kicks in. When faith says, but I trust what God says. Faith is not just this ethereal thing where I go, well, I just trust the Lord, you know? That's where, where sometimes people do things and go, well, I'm just trusting God. And you're going, yeah, but you're disobeying him. Like, there's principles here you're, you're ignoring. That's not trusting the Lord, you know? Well, I'm not afraid. I'm, that's not a good thing right now because the Bible says you're supposed to be wise about this, this, and this. But faith, biblical faith, is when we see what the Word says and we go, yeah, but this might end up bad for me. Like, everything tells me this is going to end up bad for me if I do what God says. That's when faith says, I trust the Lord. I don't trust my own senses in this situation. Now, I love Jonathan, too, because he's not presumptuous. He doesn't presume he can just rush over there and start swinging and, and that God's required to back him up. He says to his uh, assistant, he says, it may be, which means it may not be, but it may be that the Lord will work for us. I love that. He basically says to this guy, you know, prideful presumption would say, we're going to go and God just has to, he, he has to honor it. But biblical faith Faith is bold at the same time it's being submissive. And so what Jonathan's saying is if we make ourselves available, maybe God will do something for us. So let's go make ourselves available. And the reasoning is, for there is no restraint to the Lord. There's no obstacle, no hindrance to the Lord to save by many or by few. 
What a beautiful truth that is. God doesn't need the numbers to balance out. We, we, don't, we don't make decisions as Christians by going, well, you know, there's a 74% chance this works and a 26% chance that obedience fails. That's, that's not how we do it. We go, well, God tells us to do this, so let's do that. Let's trust him because we know he loves us. We know that he knows what's best for us. God doesn't need any kind of quota or drop dead point to act. He technically doesn't need us at all. But he chooses to partner with those whose hearts are steadfast towards him. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in 2 Chronicles 16.9 when God was, through the prophet, rebuking King Asa because Asa took matters into his own hands. And he tells him, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong in the behalf of him whose heart is, King James says, perfect towards him, but it means steadfast toward him. A heart that is loyal, devoted, dutifully unwavering in its commitment to the Lord. You see, the difference between Saul and Jonathan isn't that one of them had more resources than the other one. They both had the same resource, the Lord. The difference was the condition of their heart. Now, let's see what his assistant says, verse 7. I love this. And his armor bearer said unto him, do all that is in your heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with you according to your heart. He hears Jonathan say this and he goes, Man, my heart bears witness with that. I'm right in there. I've been waiting for somebody to say, let's go do something like that, you know? Lead the way. I'm right behind you. I'm 100% got your back. You know, Jonathan gets a lot of attention, and rightfully so. He's an amazing man. But this unnamed guy is awesome too. You know, he could have said, "Uh, boss, it's just two of us or something along those lines. But he says, this is what I've been waiting for, hoping for. You know, those 600 guys who stuck with Saul, we don't talk about them a whole lot. Do you know how easy it would have been to leave? I mean, everybody else had already. It would not have been difficult. You know, it's like one of those things where, you know, people start backing out and then finally someone comes to you and says, yeah, I don't think this is going to work out. You know, I'm I'm going to back out too. Like, I don't think anyone there would have looked at them and thought, loser. I imagine there's plenty of people who thought, I get it, I get it. I've been thinking about it too. But these 600 guys were men who were watching their nation crumble and yet they've remained loyal to Saul. They haven't gone anywhere. The folks who stayed, they're like this guy. They're just waiting for someone to lead them in trusting the Lord, waiting for someone to say, let's see what God might do. And that's who we're supposed to be to one another. You know, there's nothing wrong with being wise according to the scriptures. We're supposed to be that way. But I've found there are way too many, if you've read Paradise, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, I don't know why I said Paradise Lost, Pilgrim's Progress, there are way too many Mr. Worldly wise men in the church who discourage people who are trying to live by biblical principles and who are trying to have a biblical mindset. Well, that's, that's not very wise. You know, you need to do this, this, and this first. Israel was in this mess because their king leaned on their own, his own understanding. Let's be like Jonathan and his armor bearer instead. Now, Jonathan does have a more detailed plan to discern the Lord's will here. And so before he leads away, he explains that plan to his assistant once he knows he's got his support. Verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, 
we will pass over unto these men, and we will reveal ourselves, discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, tarry until we come to you, stay down there, and then we'll come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign, the miracle, unto us. Now, I don't know why Jonathan made the more difficult option, the one that lets them know God wants them to attack. The likelihood that they would say, come on up here, you know, compared to, hey, you stay there, we're going to come down and get you. Um, That is the more likely thing than for them to be lazy and say, come up here. Uh, But I can say this, I know I've prayed similar prayers when I wasn't sure what God wanted me to to do. Basically, I say, God, if you really want me to move forward, do this unlikely thing, you know? I, I remember, oh, where was it? I don't write down my stories ever, as you can probably tell. Where was I? I don't know what it was, but there was a situation where I had to make a decision once, and I said, Lord, somebody's going to have to say this to me if I'm going to do this. Oh, I remember. It was when I was praying about the Lord put on my heart to apply for the position here. And I said, Lord, that's insane. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this. And the Lord kept hounding me for weeks. And finally I said, tell you what, if someone from there calls me and tells me I should apply, I'll apply. Never going to happen. I, I didn't know hardly, I mean, I knew some of the families here, but I didn't know any leadership here. I didn't know anybody. And, and lo and behold, at the same time this had happened, I'd, I'd called Pastor Gibb to check up on him because I, I was worried. He's retiring. I want to know why. And I was worried about him. And so I, I called up to find out who he was doing. And so when he returned my call, one of the very first things he said to me, he goes, hey, you should apply. Dead silence on the phone when he said that. And he's like, Will? <laughs> and I said, I asked him, I said, what? this was me, why did you say that? Because <laughs> I was like, what is the likelihood of that happening? And I remember he told me, he goes, no reason. <laughs> I'm like, that's not the answer I wanted. <laughs> I've done this before. You know, God doesn't control what people say. But he knew that these guards were arrogant. You know, he knew Pastor Gibb was going to make that joke on the phone with me. He didn't have any reason he said it. And he put this idea in Jonathan's heart. God did. So it seemed like a very natural thing for Jonathan to throw out there as options. Turns out to be a miraculous sign. And so in verse 11, it says, and both of them discovered themselves, they revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, behold, the Hebrews come forth out of their holes where they have hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. They were genuinely shocked to see Israeli troops confront them because Saul and his troops had been in hiding. And they kind of deride Jonathan and his armor bearer. Oh, the Hebrews have come forth out of the holes. The word there means they're animal dens. They've come out of the holes they've dug in the ground like animals where they've been hiding. And they told him, come up here and we'll show you a thing, you know? And so Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, that's the sign. Let's go get them. Come up after me for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And it says, Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after them. I mean, I'm picturing, you know, the whole, the whole princess bride scene, you know, where he's climbing up, you know, to go fight, you know, and dig him at Matoya and, and, you know, without the help though, you know, and he's just, you know, clawing everything. Just wait a second. I'll be there in a second. I'll whoop you guys, you know. 
him and his armor bearer, they're scratching themselves up as they're clawing up to go fight these guys up there, as they're chuckling and laughing and thinking, as soon as they get up here, we're going we're gonna to wipe the floor with these two crazies. You know, Jonathan had to work hard to get to the place where he'd be severely outnumbered. Most of us avoid impossible situations. I know I do. We certainly don't exert effort and scratch up our arms and legs climbing to get to an impossible position. What an amazing pair these two guys are. I need more of this mindset in my life. And look at what they did. It says, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. Now that Jonathan knew God's will, he did rush in swinging. He got to the top and whoever he knocked down, his assistant finished off. And these wadis are incredibly narrow, so the Philistines could not just send everything they had at him. They had to fight him, you know, probably three or four at a time. And Jonathan, he's just taking, knocking people down, and the armor bearer's just, yeah, you know, next, yeah, you know, and just taking them out until 20 men are dead. Look at verse 14. And that first slaughter which Jonathan, his armor bearer, made was about 20 men within, as it were, a half acre of land, which is a, a yoke of oxen might plow. You know, Israel had lost so much ground to the Philistines since Saul disobeyed, but Jonathan took a half acre back with just two soldiers. Just two soldiers. Think of what 600 could have done. You know, killing 20 men with two might seem more akin to movie than reality, but again, in those narrow confines, it would have been impossible for the Philistines to surround Jonathan and his assistant. The Philistines likely kept coming because they probably thought that eventually somebody would land a blow and then they'd be done for. But once the dead started piling up, they eventually fled. And when they reached the main army, God began to do his thing. Look at verse 15. And there was a trembling in the host of the, Phil- in the, host in the field and in, among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. Now, the first trembling there refers to terror or anxiety. Um, It mentions here that as these soldiers, this this guard force, however big it was, is fleeing back to the main force, it says that terror and anxiety began to come over the army. And I imagine if just, you know, with while news that two men had routed an entire guard force might be terrifying, they'd probably be thinking, what could the rest of Saul's army do if just two guys whooped us this badly? But that wasn't what made them fearful. It also tells us that the earth quaked. As the news is coming in, as soldiers are fleeing into the main force, when he mentions those in the field, those the people, it's talking about those who are on the move, uh, because remember the army had started moving, those who were the support staff, the people, those who were in the garrison, those who hadn't moved yet, and then even the the spoilers who who were out there, you know, pillaging and whatever. Everywhere the Philistines were, news started to come in, the Hebrews are attacking, we're on the run. But if that, that wasn't the thing that got them the worse. The worse was right after this news starts coming in, an earthquake occurs. Now, when news comes in that you're being whooped by an inferior force and then it's followed by an earthquake, it's not that you're terrified that two guys whooped up on a few of your men. Now you know you're not just fighting two or 600 men. Now you know you're fighting God. And that's why terror sweeps through. It says it was a very great trembling. It sweeps through the entire army. Now, can you imagine how awesome it must have felt to have been Jonathan as assistant right now? Dude, look at what we did. 
Look at what we started. Look at what we were part of. Look at what the Lord did. He is fighting for us just like he promised he would. You know, we read in Psalm 40, and, and you know, that phrase there where in, I think it's verse five, maybe verse four, in Psalm 40, where he says, blessed is the man that makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Oh, that men would trust the Lord. That's what this psalm is urging us to do. The person writing it, David himself, is saying, oh, that men would trust the Lord. I trusted the Lord, and this is what he did for me. Oh, that you would trust the Lord because you'll be blessed too. You know, it's interesting, if you read the rest of that psalm, some of what we read in our scripture reading, you see that it's actually talking about Jesus, that this was his mindset, that he was someone who trusted the Lord. You see, Jesus was someone who was 100% convinced that he was loved by his father. He knew his father could be 100% trusted, even when his father led him to a horrible pit. How many times do we read in the scripture that Jesus was surrounded and he just walked right out? Like there are situations where if you were a disciple, you were going, I think this is the end. Like I think this is it. I think it's over. I think they're going to kill Jesus. And Jesus, the Bible would tell us, he would just walk right through the crowd. He 100% trusted his father, even when his father led him to a horrible pit. Oh, that men would trust the Lord just like Jesus did. Well, when the earthquake struck, Saul's scouts went to find out what's going on because they hear the chaos and they hear the noise. And so verse 16, it tells us, and the watchmen of Saul and Gabeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude melted away. The word there means to collapse. The whole Philistine army just started collapsing. The order of the superior armed force with all the superior weaponry just began to crumble into chaos. And they went on beating down one another, the King James translators decided to take something that happens later in the text and explain it here. Literally, it means they just ran in every direction. There's no beating going on right now. One another is not in the original text. So there's no reason to think they were fighting each other at this point. But the language is telling us that when this earthquake hit and the news was accompanying by it, that they just scattered in every direction. Now, when Saul hears that the Philistine army is running, he assumes correctly that some of his men attacked. Verse 17. Then Saul said unto the people that were with him, Number now and see who is gone from us. And when they numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And so, <laughs> verse 18. Saul said unto Ahia, the high priest, Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass that while Saul was talking unto the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Saul hears about, he knows his son has started whatever this is, and he's not going to be outdone spiritually. He's going to be seen by his men as the one who gets the next set of instructions from the Lord. So he calls the ark, calls the high priest, tells him to put his hands into his robe, which is where he kept the Urim and the Thummim, those two, what we believe, are two stones where they would discern the will of the Lord. And so find out what God wants us to do. Should we attack or not? And so as the high priest is going and, and doing all this, the noise is just escalating and escalating and escalating. And before he can get an answer, Saul says, no, we got to go now. And he just leaves. 
He can't even follow through with this. Because as the high priest is reaching into his robes to consult the urim and the thummim for God's answer, Saul takes matters again into his own hands. Verse 20. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves and they came to the battle. What do they find? Behold, every man's sword was against his fellow and there was a very great discomfiture. The word there means panic. There was chaos and confusion. Uh, when, and when you take that and you mingle it with terror, rational thought goes out the window. And so people are fighting each other. We're going to learn a little bit. There was one other factor uh, because the Israelis who had been enslaved, they took up arms. Look at verse 21. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. So as they're coming to the battle to find out what's going on, what it looks like is the Philistines are all fighting each other. Some of them are, but some of them are Israelis who had sided with the Philistines, and now they're turning against the Philistines again. And so at this point, Saul and his men join the rout. And as news spreads, those who'd been hiding in the mountains, they join in the chase. Look at verse 22. Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. And so, verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. You know, from day one, when Saul summoned all Israel to Gilgal, and he was supposed to wait there seven days for Samuel, from moment one, it was going to be the Lord who rescued Israel, right? It was always, they were always going to be outnumbered. They were always going to have inferior weaponry. It was always going to be the Lord who took care of them. But Jonathan and his assistant, well, they were the ones who trusted him for it. And what a blessing that must have been for them. And so, as the Philistines flee, it says the battle passes over. It moved through uh, unto Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon is a few miles west of Michmash, so the Philistines are fleeing uh, toward um, back home now. They eventually form, at some point, some type of organized retreat. Uh, But they are retreating at this point, even though they still outnumber the Israelis. And, you know, Saul, he wasn't going to have anyone think he didn't have the guts to chase him down, but that's a sermon for next week, so... We'll pick it up in verse 24 and see the interesting things that happen there. So, anyway. Listen, whatever appearance Saul tried to give to the people to win them back to his side, Jonathan's the one who had the steadfast heart. Saul wavered numerous times in in this campaign, and he will show his carnal attitude as the battle continues. But Jonathan never wavered. And that's a heart that God can use to do amazing things. I mean, don't you want to be the one that trusts God to do the rescuing? Don't you? Me too. I want to be the one that says, okay, God, I know it sounds crazy, but I know you can do this, and I'm going to look to you and you alone, and I'm going to follow you all the way. Let's have steadfast hearts, and let's see what our great God might do. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, I I read about Jonathan, and it fires me up. You know, I want to be 
that guy. I want to be like David who, you know, said, I, I don't care about any of the odds. Don't tell me the odds. Don't, don't, don't tell me what has to be done. Don't tell me who I have to be to pull this off. All I need is your word, Lord. And Lord, that's our desire tonight, to be people who will follow your word, who will trust in you with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding, knowing that you'll make our path straight. You'll direct our path if we do so. Lord, you're the one who can turn a hill into a valley. Lord, you're the one who can, you know, say to that mountain, be thou removed, and it, it's gone. So, Lord, that faith of a mustard seed, that, that, that faith that we need is just that faith that trusts what you say, trusts your way. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to do that tonight, to trust you, your word, your ways, your love for us, your faithfulness, your power to protect us, your hands that will never drop us, Lord, and your arms that are always underneath, everlasting. We love you. Thanks for loving us first. Thank you for good examples like Jonathan. Help us to be like him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.